The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, we are, thank you to those of you who filled in the holes as I was gone last week. Thank you, Derek, for preaching uh, a second week. Blessed many of the saints by bringing the word. Really appreciate that and, and all the other faithful saints. And so we will resume and go back now where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We are going through the book of Acts. We, this is, I believe today is message number 10 on the book of Acts, which takes us now to the last part of Acts chapter 3, the book of Acts written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, 28 chapters of real history. Everything that you read in the book of Acts actually happened that way. The Spirit of God moved upon Luke to be a faithful witness and a historian to recount the events of the last days of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, his ascension into heaven, and the launching of the church in the very beginning in the ministry of the apostles. This is our heritage. This is how we begin. This is our, we're part of this great legacy that's gone on for 2,000 years. And so what a wonderful joy we have as Christians and as the church to read about the book of Acts because it's about us, how we began, where we came from, how it all started, what the mission is, where this is going how God is totally, sovereignly in control, very encouraging. It's all narrative and story form, but from it we learn many principles that are applicable to our very own lives as individual Christians, but also corporately as a church and universally as the church of God in a lost world. We go to God's living word, the Bible, to learn how to live. And God gave us the book of Acts and preserved it for 2,000 years for that very purpose. And so we have a wonderful privilege to go through the book of Acts together as a church. Up to this point, we learned in Acts chapter 1 the ascension of the Son. The Lord Jesus went back into heaven and promised to return again. And then we went to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes to you. And we saw on Pentecost how God sent his Spirit in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies like in Joel chapter 2 and Ever since then, the Spirit of God literally takes up residence in every person who is born again and becomes a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, the Spirit of God lives in you. And that began the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the Lord Jesus Christ departed into heaven. And then we picked up now in chapter 3, where John and Peter, and this is where we left off, could be days, could be weeks, After Pentecost, uh, Acts chapter 3, crippled beggar is set free. That's what happened is John and Peter at 3 o'clock in the afternoon was prayer time. It was official prayer time at the temple and also sacrifice time. Peter and John, they were Jews, but they still went to the temple. They were faithful Jews. They didn't abandon temple worship. They didn't abandon everything that the Mosaic law required of Jews, although they did understand the sacrifices in a new way. They knew that the Lamb of God had come and fulfilled all those sacrificial requirements of the Old Testament that Moses laid down. So the apostles continued, and even the Apostle Paul continued to go to temple, go to worship, go to prayer time, be among the Jews, understanding the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the substance, that he was the reality of all those shadows in the Old Testament. And so days, maybe weeks after Pentecost, Peter and John are preaching as apostles, laying the foundation of the church, winning over converts by God's grace and the power of the gospel. Three o'clock, they go to prayer time. 
They go to the temple, and they are about to enter into the temple courtyard, and at one of the most prominent, amazing gates called the Beautiful Gate, which is an entry into the temple proper area, there is a lame man who is there, and he's 40 years old plus. And routinely, daily, his friends and buddies were carrying them there strategically to the the temple area in front of the Beautiful Gate to beg for money. To beg for alms. It's like the guy on the highway. As you're driving off or getting on, he's asking for money. Won't work for food, but give me some money. And that's what this beggar was doing. And the guys carrying him were in cahoots with him because they had to carry him. And so that's what he did. And he was begging alms. And so he saw Peter and John, and he was asking for money. And Peter looked right at him, as did John. And they fixed their gaze upon this man, and the man expected to return uh, get some money, and, and Peter told him, silver and gold, we have none, but what I give you. And this man was born lame. He couldn't walk. He was deficient for whatever reason, physically, in his feet and in his legs and in his ankles. He never walked a day in his life. So for 40 years, he was accustomed to just sitting down and laying down. He doesn't even know what it's like to walk as a 40-year-old man, and Peter didn't have any money to give him. And Peter said, but in the name of Jesus Christ... Walk, and Peter grabbed him by the hand, pulled him up, and this man instantaneously was healed supernaturally in his ankles and in his feet, says the word. And the man instantly, it said, he stood on his feet, he began walking, and then he began praising God, leaping and jumping. And Peter and John entered into the temple, they did their business, they they prayed, they interacted with other people. All the while, this man that got instantaneously healed on the spot was following Peter and John clinging to them and hooting and hollering and making a scene in the temple area. And he was gathering a crowd. People were looking because it said they were noticing that he was praising God as he was leaping up and down, hooting and hollering and jumping and clinging on to Peter and John. And then Peter and John left the temple proper. They went out the uh, gate that they entered in, the beautiful gate. And then they went over just a wee bit to Solomon's colonnade. It was like a porch area that had a deck. It was shaded. It was a huge, massive area where dozens and dozens of people could gather, where they could teach uh, fellow disciples, where they could evangelize. And so Peter and John are going over to Solomon's courtyard, and this healed man is following Peter and John, clinging to them, jumping up and down, making noise, and a huge crowd began to follow them because they knew this man. They knew he was lame. They saw him there for weeks. They saw him there for years. Wait, we know this guy. He was born lame. He couldn't walk. What in the world? How did this happen? We want to find out. So they followed him over there, and then they gathered together, and Peter and John took that opportunity of this miracle that God had performed to preach to the masses that were there, of this crowd that accumulated. And these were all Jews practicing Jews. They weren't saved, most of them. They didn't have the fullness of the gospel, but they had a sincere respect for the Old Testament. They had a desire to know Yahweh personally. They were faithful in the practicing of the Old Testament sacrifices. What was missing is a comprehension and understanding of the fullness of the meaning of the gospel and the gospel only that saves. And so Peter and John are going to take this opportunity as the crowd just smothers in on them. They're not looking for how to know God or to understand the gospel or to know Jesus. They want one answer, and that is, how did this miracle happen? And who are you guys? And that was one of the reasons God allowed the apostles to do miracles, to validate their ministry that they were literally mouthpieces for God. 
And so Peter and John, they're going to be obedient to that, and they are going to give the saving gospel message to this crowd of Jews who were temple worshipers, who were intrigued by the miracle that they had just seen. Keep in mind, this is in Jerusalem. This is only a couple months or a few months after Jesus died. So no doubt, some of these in the crowd probably had seen Jesus physically, had heard him teach, and maybe even saw him do a miracle or two. So it's not like they'd never seen a miracle before in Jerusalem. After hundreds and hundreds of years of silence of God doing nothing. But they're there and they want to hear and find out who these two men are that did this unprecedented miracle. Before I do, I want to read from Isaiah 53. Follow along if you have your Bible, because this is going to set the context for the book of Acts. Because when Peter preaches, he quotes from or alludes to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the largest prophetic book in the Old Testament, 66 chapters in our English Bible, about as long as Jeremiah, one of the most quoted prophets or Old Testament books in the New Testament, one of the most explicit prophecies about the coming Messiah and all the roles that he would fulfill, and one of the most potent, poignant, pointed prophecies about the details of the coming Messiah fulfilled in Jesus is in Isaiah 53. So let's look there, keeping in mind the context of Acts chapter 3 when Peter preaches his sermon to Jews. So in Isaiah 53, I'm going to start at actually Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13. It really begins there. Isaiah 52, verse 13 says, this is Isaiah, the prophet, who had a ministry for 40 years. He ministered primarily in Jerusalem, where Peter is in the book of Acts. He probably has more prophecies about the Messiah or Jesus than anyone who prophesied in the Old Testament. He has probably some of the most specific prophecies about the Messiah to come. And the classic example would be Isaiah 53. But actually, Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13, let's go through this. This is Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born. And Isaiah is speaking in the past tense of things yet to come as though they've already been accomplished because God Almighty, He is eternal, the Father of the ages. He transcends time. And if God decrees it, it will happen. And so even though this prophecy hasn't yet happened when Isaiah is writing it and preaching it. He speaks in the past tense for the most part, and he's speaking about this coming Messiah, whoever he is, the nameless Messiah from the Jews' point of view in 700 B.C. But we know it is Jesus from the New Testament. He is called by Isaiah, Isaiah 52, verse 13, my servant, or the servant of Jehovah, the servant of Yahweh, more technically and properly. Isaiah speaks of the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God, the servant of Jehovah, it's a technical term. It refers to the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and all that he would do. So my servant, God's servant, Isaiah 52, verse 13, is who is being talked about for the rest of Isaiah 53. This coming servant of God Almighty, this coming servant in the future, who would be Messiah, is described by Isaiah in the following. Verse 13, Behold, God says, My servant, the Messiah, he will prosper when he comes. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. God is going to raise up and exalt and put on display for all the world 
At some point, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come exalted. He didn't come glorified. He came humble. He came lowly. He came unknown. He came eventually rejected, despised. He wasn't exalted for the most part during the ministry of his life. But God will, that was the promise, would exalt him at some point. And he did with his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And Jesus Christ is exalted now in the heavens, sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance, the Messiah's appearance when he comes, was marred more than any other man. His appearance will be emaciated. And that happened at the time he was tortured during his atonement. And his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will yet sprinkle many nations. That's This Messiah, when he comes, he will do the work of a high priest. He will also be judged because it says kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Kings are the most powerful people on planet earth. The king of kings will be more powerful than any king because he's going to shut their mouth eventually. That's still yet to come. And it actually happens today in many ways. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand eventually about this coming Messiah, my servant, whoever he is. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message about this coming Messiah? To whom has the arm of the Lord not been revealed? For this Messiah, he grew up before God like a tender shoot. So he's going to be a man. He's going to be a boy. He's going to be a baby. He's going to grow up like any other normal Jew and like a root out of parched ground, a root that's actually despised, a root that is insignificant, a root that is almost not considered worthy, a root that is an irritation is how he will have his humble beginnings. He has no stately form or majesty. He was not born with a halo over his head. He was unrecognizable as a king and as regal for the most part when he was young and when he grew up. His form has no majesty, that we should look upon him as a king, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him, and they weren't. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a man of sorrow, a man of being of overwhelming grief, typified the three and a half years at least of Jesus' life on earth, his public ministry. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from men, hide their face. He was despised. It says that twice. It's emphatic. And we do not esteem him. We, the Jews. Isaiah is writing to the Jewish people, the covenant people, the people that they should be knowing what to look for to identify the Messiah. And sadly, Isaiah is saying, we are not going to identify him. When he does come, and that's fulfilled in Acts chapter 3 with the leadership of the Jews, they don't recognize Jesus. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried by dying on behalf of sinners. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. The Jews thought he was worthy of death, that he deserved death. Crucify him. That's what it's an allusion to. Jesus died, Jesus was tortured, Jesus was persecuted, Jesus was killed. Who did that? Who was responsible for the death of Christ? That's a raging debate for 2,000 years. Was it the Gentiles? Was it the Jews? Was it Judas? Was it the Sadducees and the Jewish leadership? Was it all sinners? Well, Isaiah says in verse 4, smitten of God, smitten of God. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? The Father was. 
the Father was. Everybody else was culpable, but this was God the Father's plan. Smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. That is a direct reference to crucifixion. 700 years before it happened. Absolutely amazing. Pierced through for our transgressions. He died for a purpose, not haplessly, not as a mistake. He died for a purpose. He died for sinners. He died in their place. He died as their substitute. That's what Paul says is the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is how the Father treated him when he was on the cross for six hours. Smitten by God, afflicted by God, pierced by God, crushed by God, rejected by God, chastened by God, scourged by God. Those are all the words that are used to describe it. And it's for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Jesus. And by his scourging, we are healed. That refers to forgiveness of sin by virtue of the death of the Messiah. Isaiah is telling this to the Jews to let them know so they will be informed that when the Messiah does come, yes, he will be king. Yes, he will be great. Yes, he will be perfect. Yes, he'll be the son of David. Yes, he will be regal and have the right to rule. Yet he will die. He must suffer. He must be rejected for the sins of the people. They didn't get that. They didn't want to believe it. But by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All people, regardless of who you are. Whether you believe you're a sinner or not, you still are. You're a creature of God and accountable to him. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord, that is Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And he didn't when he was in front of Herod. He said not a word when he was on trial. Fulfilling this prophecy. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He is the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist, when he first saw him and declared publicly in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away by the Romans. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he died. Jesus, who was God, died. Scripture says God cannot die. Jesus, who was God, died. Unthinkable. Unthinkable. That had to be a huge stumbling block to the Jews and the Jewish leadership In the days of Peter, when they said that Jesus was the Son of God, He was the Messiah, He was the servant of Jehovah, He was deity, and yet He died. Because their scriptures said, God cannot die. That's why they pointed their finger at Jesus and John and Peter at their preaching, saying, you blaspheme. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's exactly how he died. Two guilty thieves. Yet he was with a rich man, that's Joseph of Arimathea, in his death when he was buried. Because he had done no violence, he was sinless, as Pilate said, six times. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. That was the human, legal, binding authority 
that evaluated Christ and gave its judgment. I find no fault in him. Nor is there any deceit in his mouth. He was perfectly innocent, a flawless lamb. Verse 10, but the Lord Yahweh was pleased. God the Father was pleased to crush him on the cross, putting him to grief. Why? If he would render himself as a guilt offering for sinners, he will see his offspring. He's going he's gonna to come back from the dead. He will prolong his days. He's going to come back to life, resurrection. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and he will be satisfied. He will come back to life by his knowledge, the righteous one, the righteous one, the righteous one. That's a technical phrase used by the prophet speaking of the Messiah. The righteous one, the sinless one, the perfect one. That's Jesus. Peter calls him the righteous one in Acts chapter 3. This comes right out of Isaiah 53. And the Jews know that, especially the leadership who teach the Old Testament. They know who the righteous one was to be. My servant, he will justify the many. He will save the many. He will redeem the many. He will bring salvation to the many. He will make them not guilty by virtue of his substitutionary death as he will bear their iniquities. He'll shoulder their sins. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will rise again from the dead, and he will be great, and he will be greater than the greatest. He will be king. He will reign accordingly. He will divide the booty with the strong, which means he will conquer. And he is. He's the conquering king. Why? Because he poured out himself to death. He deserves it. He is worthy of it and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Absolutely amazing Compound, complex, deep, rich prophecy about this coming Messiah. Let's go now to Acts chapter 3. Peter has this crowd around him, many Jews, a captive audience. They have been trained. They have Old Testament background and understanding. Supposedly they've been taught in the synagogues about this coming Messiah. And now Peter is going to fill them in on the details of why and how this amazing miracle happened. I mentioned last time, and this is important, that in Acts chapter 2, as the church started, there's a phrase in Acts chapter 2 about verse 42 where it says, the church was growing, God was blessing, they were increasing in number, they had wonderful, beautiful unity and fellowship together, and it says, and many miracles were being done at the hands of the apostles. Many miracles by Peter, John, James, and the rest of the apostles. So, And then again in Acts chapter 5, it says many miracles are being done at the hands of the apostles. The, the apostles are the ones doing the miracles, not any and every Christian that walks uh, comes down the pike. It was reserved, for the most part, to the apostles. They were the ones doing the miracles. And Luke doesn't record any of those miracles until now. He records this miracle. Why do you choose, Luke, this miracle of all miracles to record? And I said last time, because it is a significant miracle, it is a transitional miracle in the ministry of the early apostles, and it's also a transitional and definitive, defining moment in the book of Acts, where up to this point, Acts chapter 3, all the Christians, they were growing, they were thriving, they were being blessed, they were united, they weren't undergoing persecution, and, and then in Acts chapter 2 it says they were receiving favor from all the people. Nobody was harassing them yet. Nobody was trying to shut down their Bible studies yet until this miracle. This sets it all up. From this point on, this miracle on becomes controversial. And for the rest of the book of Acts, the Christians in the church are subjected to persecution, rejection, scorn. And that has been true for the last 2,000 years. If you're a Christian, you're going to be scorned by the world. Jesus told us that. 
the world hated me, the world will also hate you. Get used to it. Think, own that. Own that. Be courageous. Entrust yourself into God's care in light of that. Don't be a people pleaser in light of that truth. So let's go ahead and look at verses 12 through the rest of the chapter and the meaning of this miracle and the message that Peter preached to this massive crowd of temple-going Jews. I just called this passage 12 to 26, the power of Jesus, because that's what's on display. It's all about Jesus all throughout and his amazing power. Now, when you see a miracle and somebody does it, and Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And Peter goes and he grabs him and pulls him up. Now, the natural reaction by most people would be, would be, wow, who's that Peter guy? Wow, he has the ability to do miracles. I want to touch him. I want his autograph. I want to know him. I want to be around that guy. But they were wrong to be thinking that way, and Peter's going to set them straight. It's not about me. And this is what false teachers do today who supposedly do miracles. It's all about them. Be around me, come see, see me, come to the stadium and pay a fee and get near to me, be near me, you might see a miracle. It has nothing to do with you. It's a sign of a false teacher. So let's look and see what Peter has to say about this miracle. Five points I want to make about Jesus because it's all about him. Point number one is that there is power in his name, the power in the name of Jesus Christ by virtue of his nature. In the Bible, a name refers to the nature of a person many times, and that's mostly true about God. And you just go through this passage and you look at all the references to different names for Jesus. It tells us about his nature. A name refers to a person's nature, who he is. Acts chapter 3, verse 6 says, Peter said to the layman, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do I have, what, what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walked. Now he was not using Jesus' name as some magical incantation that if you repeat it five times, something mystical might happen by just invoking Jesus' name repeatedly ad infinitum. Well, that didn't work. I'll just shout it a little louder. What Peter is actually doing, he's being moved by God's Spirit to do a miracle, be a vehicle of miracle through Jesus who reigns in heaven and who is God and who is exalted and has the power to do miracles and has the power to heal. And Jesus chooses sovereignly to heal this guy through Peter. Peter is a sinner. Peter is fallen. Peter is finite. Peter is ignorant. Peter is saved. Peter loves Jesus. He's simply a vehicle for Jesus to do a miracle. And that's what it means. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And he did. So this miracle was done in the name of Jesus, meaning by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus was the one who did the miracle. And so Peter's going to reiterate that by this beautiful, blessed name, the, the name of this Savior who is Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. And I just wanted us to survey some of the names that Peter refers to Jesus here because it speaks of his character and also his work. But before that, did you know that there are over 200 references, different references to describe Jesus in the Bible? 200 in terms of different names he has. You know how many names Allah, the false god, has? One. It's Allah. He doesn't have a plethora of multitudinous names that perfectly reflect like a beautiful diamond with so many different edges and refractions of beauty to it that speak of his the depth of his character and his nature and his work like Jesus who has over 200 names in the Bible. 
He shall be called Emmanuel, said Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah also said in chapter 9, verse 6, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name, singular, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Father of Eternity. Or Revelation 19, John the Apostle saw a vision. He was on a white horse, and his name shall be called Faithful and True. Faithful. You have to take them one at a time. He is faithful. He is perfectly faithful. He is true. He is infinitely true. And he goes on. And he has a name written on his thigh. In addition, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in addition, the Father is given a name which no one knows except he himself. And he has an eternal, infinite intimacy on a personal basis with the Father that no one else can invade upon or intrude upon. It's amazing. Over 200 names of this blessed Jesus. Peter invokes some of these names. Let's look at a few of them. Verse 13, he calls him a servant, his servant Jesus, the servant of God. Takes that right out of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 1, Isaiah uh, 52. The servant of Jehovah, the coming Messiah. And this is Jesus, servant. In the Greek text here in verse 13 is not the normal word for servant. It's not diakonos, it's not doulos. It's a different word. It's a unique word. It is a rare word. Paida. Paida. It's also used in verse 26 of the same chapter. Uh, the unique son. The unique one who belongs to and has a, a child and family and personal relationship with. Very precise, narrow, technical term referring to the coming Messiah who belonged to Yahweh himself. His name, Jesus. That means God saves. God saves. That says it all. Yahweh saves. I am the Savior. Verse 14, he's called holy. The Holy One. That's an old, that comes right out of the Old Testament prophets. The Holy One. The Holy. Do you know that the, there's only one who is holy and that is God? According to the Old Testament, that is Yahweh. Jesus is also holy. He is Yahweh. He is God. Holy means he is perfect. He is flawless. He is sinless. Not only that, verse 14, Jesus is holy, he is also the righteous one. Definite article, the righteous one. There's only one righteous one, and it is Almighty God. In the Old Testament, it is Yahweh and Yahweh alone. In the New Testament, it is revealed that Jesus also, with the Father, is the righteous one. He does everything right. He is the perfect judge. Verse 15, he is called the Prince of Life, the author of life, literally. The originator of life. The sustainer of life. As he said himself in John 5. As the Father has life in Himself, so also the Son has life in Himself and grants it to whomever He will. And that's spiritual life. Totally sovereign as the author and the Prince of life. He is called Christ in verse 18 and Christ in verse 20. Christ is the Anointed One, the Messiah, the King, the Designated One, the Rightful One who will rule on behalf of God over His people. That is Jesus. He is the Christ, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Prophecies, verse 22, he is called the prophet. That is the mouthpiece of Almighty God. He speaks divine, direct, special, binding revelation. And Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted and prophesied, yes, there are many prophets like Samuel, but the greatest prophet of all will arise someday. He will rule and he will reign supreme. The Jews knew that. They knew this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. That's why when John the Baptist was making a stink in Jerusalem and baptizing, drawing crowds and looking funny and screaming, repent, 
the Pharisees and Sadducees went to John the Baptist and like, who, who are you? It's undeniable the movement you have created. And they said, are you the prophet? The prophet comes right out of Deuteronomy 18. The prophet who would be Messiah. Same thing in John chapter 6. Many people were saying, is this Jesus the prophet? Jesus, prophet, spokesperson of Almighty God himself and perfect representative. So that is Jesus, his blessed name. Starting at verse 12, let's just read through. So, so when Peter, uh, but when Peter saw the response of the crowd, they were just, what did he see? They, it says they were amazed. Two times it says they were in amazement, they were in wonder, they were filled with wonder, uh, ecstasis, ecstasy, they were bewildered, they couldn't figure it out, what in the world is going on, there's talking, there's mumbling, maybe even shouting out, who are you, how did this happen? So that's why verse 12 can say, but when Peter saw this, saw the crowd reacting, he knew that they had mis aligned, misattached loyalties about where the the power was coming from. And that's why Peter says this. But when Peter saw the crowd, he replied and said to the Jewish crowd, to the Jewish people, men of Israel. Now, that included women as well. It's a Hebrew idiom. But they're Jews. Why are you amazed at this miracle? Or it's rhetorical. You shouldn't be amazed at this miracle. I mean, you just saw Jesus do three years of miracle here in Jerusalem. Why are you amazed at this miracle? Why do you gaze at us? Why are you looking at me and John as though we're something? We're not. As if by our own power or our piety that we are special and more religious than everybody else, that we made him walk. That is not the truth. That isn't what it is. Verse 13 is the truth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, our Jewish God, revealed in written scripture of the Old Testament, has glorified his servant from Isaiah and the prophets, his servant, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, the one whom you delivered. Now, Peter starts pointing the finger. And his sermon here amounts to guilt first and then grace. And that's how you have to give the gospel. You've got to make it clear to the sinner, they're a sinner. There are consequences. And there's only one solution. And you are culpable. And you are personally responsible. And that's what Peter does to these Jews. Guilt, then grace. God glorified Jesus, exalted him, raised him up into heaven, honored his faithful ministry, that Jesus, the one whom you delivered, the one you gave over, the one that was in your responsibility, the Jewish leadership, starting there, and disowned, literally denied in the presence of Pilate. You brought him to Pilate. He had the authority to execute. He was a Gentile. He was the Roman governor. He didn't know anything about Jesus. He examined Jesus thoroughly, carefully, concluded he's done nothing wrong, worthy of death. So he gave him to Herod because they wouldn't relent, the Jews who hated him. Herod, and then Herod came back, yeah, nothing, guilty, not guilty. And then Pilate said that to the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, Herod doesn't find anything wrong with him. I've said he's not guilty. Uh, I'm going to let him go. And then they flipped out, and then they created a tumult among the crowd. And they said, absolutely not. And then Pilate began to get nervous, and he was being manipulated. And he caved, and he gave in. And his wife even tried to warn him through an angel. This is innocent innocent blood you're about to condemn. And then, so three times he said, I find no fault on him, I find no fault on him. Nevertheless, the Jews were persistent. They were filled with absolute, utter hatred towards Jesus. 
and they absolutely insisted and even threatened Pilate, we won't settle for anything less than his death. Delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So finally, Peter, uh, Pilate gave in. Verse 14, and Peter says, but you disowned the holy and right... You, the only people getting condemned to death by a court of law are those who are guilty of the most heinous crime. Contrary to that, Jesus is the holy and the righteous one. And instead, unbelievable, you asked for a murderer in return to be granted for you. You asked for Barabbas, the murderer, in place of the sinless prince of life. What a rebuke. What an indictment. Number five, Point number two. He goes on about Jesus. You delivered him over, verse 15, but to put to death the prince of life. What an irony. They killed the prince of life. They killed the author of life. They killed the only one who can give life. And the one whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. The gospel has to have the reality and the truth about the resurrection. Otherwise, you don't have the gospel. Jesus rose. He died for sins and rose again from the dead. And Peter says, we are witnesses. Him and the 120, they saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. It is a historical, ironclad fact. The gospel is based on factual realities and truths. Point number two, Jesus has power over death. He rose from the dead. He has power over death. What, why is there death in the world? Why do people die? Ultimately, because sin entered in the world. That's what Romans 5 says doesn't matter how anybody dies. Ultimately, they die because of sin. Disobedience entered the world through Adam. And as a result of sin, death entered the world. Romans 5, very clear. And also Genesis chapter 2, In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die, says Ezekiel. Death. It's the greatest enemy, says Paul in Corinthians. It's the greatest enemy of humanity. It's the greatest enemy of any soul. Physical death, eternal death. Separation from God is what it means. Well, Jesus has power over death. And by Jesus' death, he killed death. Let me say that again. By Jesus' death, he killed death. He overpowered death. He conquered death. He gave the only solution for human death. It's one thing that everybody fears regardless of where they come from. Even unbelievers who say they don't fear death, deep in their soul, they fear death. It is an enemy. It's an enemy of humanity. But Jesus has conquered it. That's the only solution to overcome death. And Jesus did that by virtue of his resurrection. He has power over death. Also, number three, he has power over disease as the God-man, as the Son of God. He has authority over the curse. That's verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. It is the person of Jesus who has done this miracle, who has healed this man. Why do we have disease? I just asked, why do we have death in the world? Now, why do we have disease and sickness in the world? There's only one answer. One ultimate answer It's because of the curse. Where did the curse come from? Curse is a result of sin. But who cursed the earth? God the Father cursed the earth. That is in Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8. That's why bad things happen. Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tornadoes? Why are there uh, tsunamis? Why 
are there weeds? Why are there famines? Why are there wildfire? It is the, this cursed earth in which we live. Why is there aging and pain? It's a result of the curse. Why is there disease and sickness and cancer? It is a result of the curse, which is a result of sin. That is the biblical answer. It's not a platitude. It's not shallow and simplistic. It's the fact. And the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection overcomes the curse, ultimately. If you're a Christian and you die in this life, that's not it. It's not the end, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a beautiful, eternal relationship with God in heaven forever, apart from the curse and all disease and death. It's a blessed union yet to come. And the Lord Jesus Christ has power over disease because he was the God-man. And he told John the Baptist in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist was questioning whether he was the Messiah, John the Baptist was in prison and he sent some of his apostles, go find Jesus, because John was, I mean, he was depressed. He is in prison. He may have been beaten. He is confined. He's being deprived. He's being isolated. He begins to question himself, question the will of God. His faith was waning. He was allowed to talk to some of his disciples. Go find Jesus and find out if he really is the Messiah. Have I missed the mark? Did we go wrong? That's Matthew 11. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, oh, okay. Go tell John that the blind see. The lepers are healed. The lame walk. The gospel is preached to the poor. In doing that, he quotes from Isaiah two times, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Those are the credentials of the Messiah. The Messiah had to be armed with the ability to have miracles that overcame disease by passing the curse that God put on this world, validating that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the only Messiah, the only Savior. And he has power over death. And Jesus did miracles and he healed people. The apostles did miracles and they healed people. Uh, This gift, this ability is not in vogue today for us the way it was for Jesus and the apostles. Doing these kind of miracles and healing was a mark and a credential of an apostle. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. I'm not an apostle. I don't have these credentials. But God still does miracles. And today for us is James chapter 5. Is anyone among you sick? Then pray. Get the elders. Pray. Effectual prayer from a, a righteous believer can answer prayer and actually at times by God's sovereign choice can heal someone. So God does still do miracles. He still does heal, but he does do it in a different way, and many times through a different vehicle. And it is all at his prerogative, and it is all for his glory. So Jesus still has power over disease, and when he comes and returns again at the second coming, and he reigns on this earth for a thousand years, it says he's going to remove the curse. That's what Isaiah says. The Messiah will remove the curse that causes many of these things, including disease. And then when you go to heaven, the curse is removed totally and completely. We will be perfectly whole by virtue of Jesus's work. So that is a truth for us to hold on to even today. He has power 
over death. He has power over disease. And even more blessed than that is number four. It's the thing that causes all these bad and horrible things. And that's verse 17 to 21. And that is Jesus has power over sin. He's the Savior first and foremost of sin. He saved us from sin. He saved us from a lot of things. He saved us from the world, the devil, hell, death. But he saved us from sin. He died for our sin. He rescued us from sin. He has power over sin. He satisfied the Father's wrath. God hates sin. Psalm 5, many other places. God must punish sin. The wages of sin is death. God will not wink at sin. God will not bypass sin. God will not forget about sin. God will always deal with sin, and ultimately He deals with sin, finally, in a satisfactory and eternal manner, by punishing the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That gave eternal satisfaction to God's wrath and hatred for sin. And he died for sinners as their substitute, absorbing the wrath of God so that God will not be angry. When you were not saved, God was angry at you. The wrath of God was abiding on you, pouring down on you, pressing down on you. That's John 3.36. The wrath of God weighing down on the unrepentant sinner. That's Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed continually from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. That wrath and anger is alleviated, really taken away when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he satisfied God's wrath by virtue of his death on the cross. That is good news. If you are a Christian today, God the Father is not mad at you. His wrath is not pressing down on you. Now you're adopted into his family. He is your father. He loves you. We are still sinful and weak. And when we make a mistake, he gives us a spiritual spanking. And it's a loving spanking, according to Hebrews 12. And it's something that we can bear, and it's for our good. And also Revelation says the same thing. So there's a big difference between his chastening love to correct us and his righteous wrath towards unrepentant sinners. But Jesus has power over sin, 17 through 21, says, Peter goes on, and now... He's, he's talking to these, he calls them brethren, they're fellow Jews. And now, I poured the guilt on you. You are guilty, you are culpable, you killed the Messiah. But it doesn't end there. There's guilt and grace. That's good news. And now, brethren, I know that you get this. This phrase just blows my mind. I actually couldn't figure this phrase out this week. It was the most challenging phrase in this entire chapter, if not the whole New Testament. And now, brethren, that he just castigated and rebuked and impugned and indicted for the killing the Messiah willingly. And now he says, and now, brethren, those of you who just killed the Messiah, I know that you acted in ignorance. Whoa. That almost sounds like an excuse. Acted in ignorance? Just as, get this, your rulers did. I can understand the fickle mob on Palm Sunday saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and waving things that welcoming King Jesus into town. And then five days later, screaming, crucify him, crucify They didn't know what they were doing. They had been manipulated and played, as the masses always are by tyrants throughout history, including today. So they rendered a verdict of crucify him, crucify him in much ignorance. 
Ignorance has to do is without knowledge. There's something they didn't know. There's a deficiency in what they should have known. Whether it was they didn't know enough about the consequences. They didn't know enough about Scripture and understand it properly because they had been betrayed and misled by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes who didn't teach the Bible accurately. They distorted the Bible. They clouded it. They darkened it so the people couldn't read it and understand it properly. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, the blind leading the blind. That's what he said about the Pharisees. So there was great ignorance about the truth of God's word and who the Messiah was. Great ignorance on behalf of the masses of the Jewish people who sincerely wanted to know Yahweh, true God, as they did their temple worship. Yet there was this tremendous ignorance. And so Jesus is on the cross for six hours. And he's looking down at those who are mocking him. And he said with the heart of God's infinite love, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. That is ignorance. At a minimum, it means they are candidates for salvation. That's not lenience. That's not God blowing off accountability. That's infinite love from the heart of God. That is an offer of grace and mercy. You get another chance, this time being fully informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazing. So they are accountable. They were culpable. But they're getting another chance. And so here's God. They rejected Jesus the first time when he came. All of, all of Israel, the people of God, the holy people of God, the people entrusted with the covenant, they categorically rejected their Savior in mass as a nation. And now Jesus is offering a second time to the people of God, the Jews, through Peter. You acted in ignorance, verse 18, but the things which God announced beforehand in times past by the mouth of all the prophets that this, his Christ would suffer. He has now thus fulfilled Jesus. Yes, you killed Jesus, but amazingly, it had to, that was according to God's plan. He had to die. Therefore, verse 19, repent. There it is. How do you evangelize an unbeliever? You call them to repentance. You call them to repentance. In the words of Jesus in John, or Mark 1.15, Jesus came preaching saying, repent and believe in the gospel. They go hand in hand. Repentance and belief. Repentance and faith are two different sides of the same coin. And that's how you become a Christian. It's the heart of the gospel. You call sinners to repent. Repent, what does that mean? To change your mind, to change your attitude, to change your heart, to change your allegiance from sin and self and Satan to and turn is what it means. Repent means to turn and turn towards God and God alone, to Jesus Christ, to righteousness. Admit that you are a sinner. That is at the heart of repentance. And this is the blessed, beautiful. It's not a system of works righteousness. Go to Mecca on your knees over the course of 2,000 miles once in your lifetime, and maybe God will like you more. Or doing all these good deeds or give more money. That is not the gospel. That is bad news. That isn't good news. The good news is very simple. Here is the gospel. It's about Jesus and what he did. And it's also understanding truly who you are as diagnosed by God, the creator and the judge, according to his word, that you are sinful, separated from God, Sin warrants death and eternal separation from God and the judgment of God, and that is just, and it's inescapable. But the good news is there is a solution. It's initiated by God himself, and he is a blessed, wonderful, loving Savior. And he wants to save you through his blessed gospel. That is, if you admit that you are a sinner, turn from your sin and come to Jesus. Believe in him. Believe he died for you as your substitute. So it is by grace through faith apart from works. But repentance must be there. 
God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It's at the heart of the gospel. Therefore, repent and return, O Jewish people, so that your sins may be wiped away. There it is, forgiveness of sin. In order that times of refreshing may come for the Jewish people from the presence of the Lord as He promised in the Old Testament. Verse 20. So if the whole nation of Israel repented on the spot, then all these Old Testament prophecies God would bring down and fulfill, literally on the earth. Verse 20. And that He may send Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you, the Jewish people, as the King, as He predicted in so many places. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm chapter 2, with whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. That's at the end of the age, which Matthew calls regeneration of the age, at the end of the age, including the earth, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient time. Repent, be saved, and receive God's blessing. It's really that simple. Jesus has power over sin. And then finally, number five, Jesus has power over every soul. He will judge every person. Verse 22 and following, speaking of prophets who prophesied about the Messiah, Moses said and prophesied, the Lord God, Yahweh, will raise up for you a prophet like no other, like me from your brethren. He will be a Jew. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. He will be absolutely authoritative. Verse 23, he will be a prophet like no other, and it will be that every soul, every person that does not heed that Prophet, put Jesus' name in there. And it will be that every soul, every person born that does not heed Jesus shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Well, that sounds harsh. No, that is truth. But it doesn't have to be that way. The good news is Jesus can save you. Jesus can save you. Just heed. Heed him. And you won't be destroyed. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, one of the first prophets, and his successors onward, also announced these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets, you as Jewish people, and of the covenant which God made with your father, starting with Abraham, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, Abraham, your descendants, you will be the father of the Jewish people. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed through the Messiah who will come out of your loins, Abraham. He will be a Jew. He will bless the world. Verse 26, for you, you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. From you first, from you, the Jewish people first. Chronologically, God went to the Jews first. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first. And also to us Greeks. Jesus has power over every soul. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the Father judges no one. But the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed man to die once and then the judgment. Corinthians, Paul says that when a soul dies that it is immediately confronted with the bar or the judgment of God Almighty, which is the risen, glorified Jesus Christ, judge of the universe, judge of every soul. So when any human in this life breathes their last, they leave this world and they go into the afterlife, they immediately go before the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus renders a verdict. He is the judge. And they are consigned eternally to hell and damnation, or to heaven and bliss forever. And it is based on their belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's the standard of judgment. God is call, God has overlooked times of ignorance, said Paul in Acts chapter 17, but is calling all men everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of his resurrection. Jesus is judge. Muhammad Ali died not too long ago, 74 years old. I grew up watching Muhammad Ali, who always said, I am the greatest, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. And all I had heard for 10 days was on television was how great he was. The whole time I'm thinking, I wonder where Ali is today. Really, he is either in heaven or hell. When he breathed his last, he faced the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ rendered a judgment based on what Muhammad all believed about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Same thing with Prince, who died about a month ago, who was partying till it was since he was 1999. And the whole time, and everybody's talking about how great Prince was. And I'm thinking, I wonder where he is today. And then we had the tragedy of, that happened in Orlando. 49 people slaughtered, including the gunman. Every one of those people, the moment they breathed their last, they stood before King Jesus, the judge. And a verdict was rendered either heaven or hell based on their belief in the gospel. The whole world's talking about 49 people who got slaughtered, which is egregious and horrible. But thousands of more souls have died since then. And every person that dies, the same thing happens. Immediately, they are ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who will render a verdict of heaven or hell based on their belief in the gospel and who they thought the Lord Jesus Christ was. And that is what Peter is calling these Jews to keep in mind and remember. And this gracious God offers infinite forgiveness. That If you acknowledge this and repent and realize that you're, what you did to the Messiah Recognize your sin. God will forgive you. He'll forgive you instantaneously. He will forgive you completely of all of your sins, past, present, and future. That is the good news. You are secure in him forever. That is the glorious gospel we have to take to this lost world. And it's the only thing, really, that will impact this world with any significance whatsoever. So we give God the glory for that. And with that, happy Father's Day. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for corporate worship of the saints. We thank you for the ability to pray to you, to sing to you, to study your word together, the living word of God. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Thank you that your truth just cuts to the quick of the true and only realities of life, of what really matters. It's our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is really the only thing, the ultimate thing that matters in this life. God, refresh our souls with that great truth. Those of us who know you and in our family, may we bask in that great reality today, being privileged to be in your family. Holy Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, the Lord Jesus, that you died on our behalf. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for living in us and giving us the fruits of the Spirit and being our comforter and giving us supernatural peace that the world does not know. And God, also empower us to share this message with unbelievers wherever we go that they also might know this undescribable reality. It's a blessed gift from you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.